Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about Bernie Sanders. John Nichols of The Nation interviewed him last week. We'll play some clips and talk about them with John Nichols. Also, we'll play some clips and talk about them with John. Also, Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman, is playing now on Netflix. It claims to tell the true story of the murder of Jimmy Hoffa, head of the Teamsters Union who disappeared in 1974. But nobody who's studied that history thinks the movie is right about what happened to Hoffa. Does that fact change our judgment about the film? John Powers will comment. He's critic at large for Fresh Air with Terry Gross. First up... Bernie is back in second place. Trump Watch starts right now. Impeachment isn't the only thing on our political agenda. There's also the Democratic primary and the role played by a certain Democratic Socialist senator from Vermont in setting the agenda for progressives and the left. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and host of the Next Left podcast, which just wrapped up a remarkable six months of interviews with the people who are transforming politics at every level in America, concluding this week with Bernie Sanders. We reached John Nichols today on the way to Madison. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, brother. Well, impeachment was pretty much uh, everything last week, and, you know, rightly so. But in the Democratic debate last Wednesday night, Bernie said that although Trump is a pathological liar and the most corrupt president in modern history, quote, we cannot simply be consumed by Donald Trump because if we are, we're going to lose the election, close quote. What's the argument that he's making here? Well, it's a blunt statement, but an appropriate one. And, and I will note that he's not alone in saying it. I think you'll hear similar things from uh, Elizabeth Warren and, interestingly enough, Andrew Yang, who I would note really, really emphasizes this point. At the core of it is a simple concept, and that is that running against Trump is appropriate, and certainly mobilizing for a lot of folks. But even if you beat Trump, if you beat him just by being opposed to him, you lose an option that's really important. And that is to address not just Trump, but the politics that made Trump possible. Remember in 2016, a huge number of people didn't vote as is often the case in America. And another substantial portion, something like 7 million votes for other candidates. We're always uh, against the horse race here, but I'll just note in passing that for the first time in months, Bernie is back in second place in the average of recent polls. That's a significant improvement uh, for him. Uh, Let's talk about uh, Michael Bloomberg's entry into the race. Do you think it has any effect on uh, Bernie's campaign? Yeah, it has an impact. It gives him something to run against. Not that he didn't have a lot to run against anyway, but yeah, I mean, if you're running against the billionaire class and a mega billionaire gets in the race, that's certainly something you can talk about, especially if you're a candidate who says you'd like to pretty much tax billionaires out of the business. In addition, uh, it does give Sanders, Warren, and a number of the other candidates 
an opportunity to highlight campaign finance issues because there really is something wrong with a system where somebody can sit things out until pretty much, you know, halfway through and then decide, oh, I guess I'm going to run and buy their way into the process. Uh, the person it really affects, I think, is Joe Biden because, I mean, think about this, John. What is it about a relatively moderate, business-friendly Democrat in his late 70s that demands another relatively moderate, <laughs> business-friendly Democrat to get in the race? Well, a lot of our friends ask, what's the difference between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren? Of course, they do have a lot in common on the issues, but there is one really big difference. Bernie emphasizes that he wants to build a movement. He says you can't achieve any of the progressive goals without a massive movement putting pressure on Congress. And that's a big reason why he's been encouraging other people to run for office as progressives. Uh, let's listen to a clip from his interview with you on the Next Left podcast where you asked him about that. During 2016, I think there was not a speech that I gave which did not say to the young people, to the people who were there, to working people who were there, get involved in the political process, run for office, whether it is school board, legislature, city council, uh, Congress, whatever it may be, that we have to break down this psychological barrier where people think, you know, I don't have a PhD in economics or in healthcare. I, I just don't know everything. And we got to break that down and make people understand that if you have a heart full of compassion, if you understand what's going on in the world, if you believe in justice, you can run, you should run, and you can win. So, John, tell us what Bernie's been doing to recruit and help other progressives win office. One of the fascinating things was that he weighed in in a big way in uh, November 2019 on the Seattle City Council races. And I think one of the things that drew him into that was the reality that Jeff Bezos and Amazon we're really trying to tip the balance of the city council, putting a lot of money into independent expenditures with other uh, forces from the business community. So in that case, he went in to highlight an issue and in some senses to oppose one approach to politics. In another case, in San Francisco, he went in for Chesa Boudin, who was running, a, a, by any measure, a remarkable campaign for district attorney in San Francisco with the message that via the district attorney's office, you really can achieve uh, massive amounts of criminal justice reform. Polls show Bernie in second or third place among the group that pollsters call likely voters. But as you've suggested, Bernie's whole strategy is to get people to vote who have not been likely voters in the past. Uh, let's listen. The only way we beat Trump is when we have a record-breaking voter turnout, when young people get involved in a way that we have never seen, when working people get involved in a way we have never seen. And the only way that happens is when you have a campaign of energy and excitement based on the issues that will resonate with working class people all over this country. That's why we're going to win, I think. John Nichols, let's talk about what Bernie's campaign is doing to try to bring in more people as voters who have not been voters in the past. 
Oh, there's a, a lot that's going on with that. He's been putting a lot less emphasis on the, you know, the big events where all the candidates show up and try to win a sign war, right? That, you know, all the candidates have their supporters there and they wave a lot of signs and they, they try to create, you know, an impression of momentum and enthusiasm, basically for the national media. They do that a lot in Iowa, somewhat in New Hampshire. And his campaign is putting less emphasis on that and doing a really interesting thing. On the days of these big events, rather than, you know, showing up with, you know, a crowd standing outside with signs greeting everybody that's driving up or something like that, his supporters go out and work the town where the event is being held. Uh, literature drop or door-to-door effort. They're also doing, uh, especially in some of these early states, a tremendous amount of door-to-door work uh, with identification of potential can- uh, potential voters as well as mobilization. And they're doing it in places in, in very low-income neighborhoods uh, and with working-class folks who you know, aren't always the folks who show up for caucuses. And obviously the concept is to, you know, overshoot your poll numbers, to, to do better than that. And um, so that's one of the reasons why they haven't been as concerned if he's polling second someplace or, you know, if he's down a little bit in the polls. Uh, although it is notable, as you, I think you mentioned, in recent weeks, um, he has had something of a surge in the polls. And, of course, in your interview for the Next Left podcast, you asked Bernie about his heart attack His answer was pretty remarkable. So Bernie Sanders finds himself in the hospital. Bernie Sanders has to take off a few weeks from the campaign in order to recuperate. And people all around the country were saying, you know what? It's not just Bernie. It's the need to guarantee health care to all people, to raise wages in this country, to deal with climate change, to deal with education, criminal justice, immigration reform. It's not just Bernie. And Bernie has his role, but we have our role as well. I think we have sensed that. That all over this country, people are saying, you know what? We've got to stand up maybe a little bit taller than we did before. It can't all be Bernie. It can't all be Bernie, he says. How has that worked out in practice? Look, I don't think there's any doubt that Bernie Sanders' campaign is you know, very much about the appeal of the guy. So the question is, what is that appeal? Is it him? I mean, do people just like him as a person? And, and there's some evidence that a lot of people do. Or is it a a set of issues? And to the extent that it's a set of issues, that's the thing that makes it about more than him. And one of the things that that does suggest to me, to a far greater extent this time than in 2016, is, or that it is perhaps about more than just Bernie Sanders, is the significance of surrogates, of people who are going out and campaigning on Sanders' behalf at places that he doesn't get to or can't get to or uh, hasn't gotten to yet. And that was especially emphasized at the time of his heart attack and his recovery there, because you saw people like Ro Khanna, the congressman from California, Nina Turner, the longtime uh, elected figure in Ohio, uh, and a handful of other folks. uh, And they often got very large crowds. Well, looking ahead to the uh, next couple of months, Uh, Looks like Trump's trial in the Senate on impeachment charges will be held in January. The pundits are saying this will have a big effect on Iowa and maybe New Hampshire because it will prevent Bernie and the other senators who are running for the nomination 
from campaigning while the trial is going in the Senate. The Iowa caucuses meet on February 3rd, which will probably be right after the vote in the Senate. If the if Bernie and the other senators can't campaign in Iowa, Mayor Pete, not being a senator, he will benefit. He's already in first place, according to the polls in Iowa. How concerned is Bernie's campaign about this? How concerned are the other senators who are candidates? Well, I mean, it, it, you mentioned Mayor Pete, who, who is doing very well. I would also note that another guy um, who uh, could campaign in those states is Joe Biden. And <laughs> Good um, point. Yeah, I mean, we, we shouldn't write him out altogether here because he still polls first nationally and usually yeah. in the higher levels in, in some of the, the early states, especially South Carolina, I, I point out. And But with that said, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a big deal. You know how uh, people sometimes, sometimes view jury duty as a bit of a burden? Well, imagine this, that, that you could have a situation where Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and, you know, a couple other folks there, Michael Bennett, are on jury duty. <laughs> and, you know, far be it for me to be cynical about Mitch McConnell, okay? Because uh, that's not my, that's not where I come from. But right. if I was cynical about Mitch McConnell, I might imagine that he might kind of enjoy messing with this a little bit because, you know, the Democrats have thrown impeachment in his lap. And I guess I wouldn't put it past Mitch McConnell to say, okay, you guys want to do this. We're going to do this the long way. And that could really be inconvenient for, I I think, especially Warren and Sanders. John Nichols, you can listen to his interview with Bernie on the Next Left podcast at thenation.com, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. It's a really good one. John, Thanks for talking with us today. It's a total pleasure to be with you as always, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Martin Scorsese's film The Irishman on Netflix this week, it reunites Scorsese with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci from his 1990 film Goodfellas and adds Al Pacino. Got rave reviews from all the critics. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he's heard by something like 3 million people on every NPR station in America. He's also been film critic for Vogue, and before that, the LA Weekly. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. His books include Sore Winners, about George Bush's America, and WKW, about Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai. Last time he was here, we talked about John Le Carre. John Powers, welcome back. Happy to be here. Well, Donald Trump lists Scorsese's film Goodfellas as one of his favorite movies. It's not hard to see why there's so much gleeful mayhem in it. Do you think he'll put The Irishman on his list of favorites? No, he will not put The Irishman on his list of favorites. It's almost antithetical in a way to Goodfellas. 
it starts in a way as a parody of Goodfellas. You know, Goodfellas famously opens back move, with the flashy camera move going into a nightclub where everybody's having a great time. This one starts with essentially that same moving camera into an old folks home you know, with people in their chairs and you see the drips and all of that. <laughs> so it's a, ver- it's a very different feel from the beginning. And essentially, I think it's fair to say, the Irishman is something of a critique of some of Scorsese's earlier gangster movies. The Irishman is sort of the story of what happens to the guys in Goodfellas when they get old and end up in that nursing home in the first scene with their their memories and their regrets. De Niro plays Frank Sheeran, a truck driver and professional hitman. His boss is Joe Pesci's Russell Buffalino, who runs the mob in Philadelphia. Joe Pesci notably plays it quiet and intense instead of uh, over the top. In The New Yorker, Anthony Lane described the Irishman as wild strawberries with handguns. Somehow that didn't make it into the advertising for this film, but but I think he's onto something here about an old man remembering his life. Oh no, it's it's a it's a classic kind of trope in you know in literature and film, like old guys looking back and then reflecting and ruing is like a, a great tradition. Um, Scorsese really hasn't done very much of this. I mean, he's now himself an old guy, and it's hard when you look at the film not to think of him doing essentially what he's having his character do which is to look back over the territory he's covered over the years and ref- and reflecting on it. What's interesting about 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 the Irishman is that it's not fun in the way of something like Goodfellas. You know, it's not accidental that gangbangers and Donald Trump both loved Goodfellas. It has that kind of anarchic almost nihilistic energy. There's lots of fun in watching people get get killed. It's it's about getting rich and having and partying and it all being fabulous. It's it's kind of an it's a long movie, which is also part of it. It's long, it's not flashy, the scenes are muted. Even Al Pacino is an understated, which I think is is a sign that you that you have a muted film. As you say, De Niro in the nursing home is full of regrets, but these regrets are not about the his crimes. They're not about the people he's killed. What he regrets is his failures as a father to his daughters. And the girls are the moral voice of the film. What do you make of this? Part of his regret is that he's not able to feel anything. Except by the end, what he feels is regret that his daughter doesn't love him. Which brings you back to the, you know, the classic old gangster thing of family so that you care about your family. So it's it's kind of bad that you shot the head off all these people, but essentially they weren't family. But your daughter knew it, and she doesn't love you. And now that's something you can regret. When he's with the priest, he can't really feel bad enough with the priest. He's, he, 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 what he wants is he wants his daughter to love him. He doesn't want God to forgive him. So the daughter, as a child, is the silent witness who condemns him uh, with her eyes, but I have to say, she's a very minor character if you compare this with The Sopranos and Tony's daughter, Meadow. Right from the beginning of The Sopranos, year one, the famous college trip episode of season one, Meadow asked Tony in the front seat of the car, are you in the mafia, Dad? And Meadow is frightened and upset when she sees that he has literally 
blood on his hands. Scorsese sort of makes this gesture to family, but there's nothing like that here. It's really just the men getting older and sadder. Well, the thing is, Scorsese's never really been very interested in women. He's not himself a wise guy, but he grew up worshiping those guys, you know, as the asthmatic kid in Little Italy. Those were like like the star athletes for him. Like, these are the people you want to be. And they've always seemed kind of magical to him. And the people around him and like the wives and stuff have never particularly interested him. And that's true with the daughters. The daughter has, she has a functional role, but she's barely in the movie. And when she's in the movie, she's in the movie as a witness and as a condemner rather than as a three-dimensional character with a life of their own. You know, by comparison, as you say, The Sopranos, it's completely different. The daughter is much more vivid and present. She almost feels tacked on to help people get the moral point of the film. In Goodfellas, that was also about the men, but at least their wives were present. Here the wives just sit in the back seat and, and, and complain. And they smoke. They, they smoke. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I think you can tell you're in 2019 when the fact that people are really smoking a lot in a car is like a huge plot point. <laughs> dramatic. Well, I, I remember in Goodfellas, there is one real character. Lorraine Bracco was nominated for Best Supporting Actress there's nothing like that with the wives in The Irishman. I know Lorraine Bracco, this is a big deal for her because she was offered the role of Carmela on The Sopranos and she turned it down. She said, I'm sick of mafia wives. I want to do something more interesting. So she took the role of Dr. Melfi to be a positive role model as an Italian. It's Miles from De Niro. Um, I think what, what's true is, is that Scorsese isn't a specialist in women. He, he's actually had some good female characters. I realize, you know, the enraging bull, Kathy Moriarty's character is, is very good. He made the Age of Innocence, you know. I mean, so he's not uninterested in women in the way that I don't, that, that some guys are. But nevertheless, it's never been the strength of his. And he's more interested in the business of, the, of gangsterism. And in this particular film, I think it's about different kinds of gangsterism so that the Joe Pesci character is corporate gangsterism. And Jimmy Hoffa, who the film shows our hero killing, is not corporate gangsterism. He's slightly more freewheeling, anarchic, almost artistic gangsterism (laughs) and linked to a larger movement, which he, I think, believes in as well as exploiting. So the movie claims to tell the true story of the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. He was the powerful and corrupt leader of the Teamsters Union in the 50s who disappeared in 1975. The movie also claims to tell the truth about various other gangland killings, and there was a real Frank Sheeran who really did claim in a a deathbed told-to book to have killed Jimmy Hoffa. But in real life, lots of good investigative journalists have looked into the exciting story of what happened to to Jimmy Hoffa, and nobody thinks Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa. It's, it's a ridiculous idea. There's a devastating expose for people who are interested at Slate.com by Bill Tonelli. But here's the question. Does that fact affect our judgment of the movie? And if so, how? I Part of the attractiveness of the movie is the way it claims to be connected to real life and shows us lots of real things happening, which include the Bay of Pigs and Kennedy, and there's even Watergate in there. Uh, what do you make of the, the, the claims that this is the true story? 
well, I think what's interesting about the claims it's a true story is how quickly they back off. You know, when reporters ask them, they think, well, it's essentially the true story, or it could be the true story. They actually aren't really holding fast to the idea that Frank Sheeran, for example, killed Jimmy Hoffa. But when you are presenting something as a true story and then expanding that out so that it's the mafia that killed JFK, you know, and, and just taking that as just a received fact as part of the film, it doesn't make the film less entertaining. I, I don't know what you do because almost every film contains some historical lie. The The Crown, which is this hugely pop, popular Netflix thing, which, you know, which even my leftist friends love passionately. They all watch The Crown. Everybody watches The Crown. They're making stuff up all the time. Probably more interesting and complicated because Frank Sheeran, who officially kills Jimmy Hoffa in the movie, I have a reporter friend named Dan Muldea who has a photocopy on his website of Frank Sheeran's lawyer threatening to sue Dan Muldea because Muldea had claimed that Sheeran was in Detroit on the day that Hoffa was killed. <laughs> but then he sold his book and suddenly he's turned himself into the murderer of Jimmy Hoffa, even though he's prepared to sue to claim he wasn't there before. It's a tricky thing because at some point art fills people's heads with lies as well. We used to make fun of Reagan for actually believing things had happened because he'd seen it in a movie. Whereas now, well, m- movies are doing this all the time and more and more people are believing it, which at a time when people don't think that objective truth exists in any way, that may be a bad thing. And then there's the last 30 minutes of The Irishman. Our protagonists are old and sick and sad and pathetic. The reviewer for The Guardian wrote, we are suddenly made aware of the ultimate price of this lifestyle and of the crushing savagery of old age. It's a finale of stifling bleakness, of the pathetic emptiness of crime and of men who mistake their priorities in life, the discovery arriving all too late. And there's almost a meta-maturity for Scorsese, as if he is looking back on his own career, the film leaving us with a haunting reminder not to glamorize violent men and the wreckage they leave behind, close quote, The Guardian. Do you think that's right? Well, we have to unpack some of that. It's not the worst possible life. The old folks' home is a pretty nice one. You know, you, you know I mean, in terms of the wages of crime. So, so start there. It is probably Scorsese offering some sort of self-critique, but not in quite the powerful terms that, that people, I think, want it to be. If nothing else, he who reads his press clippings knows that for 45 years, people have been saying he's too into these guys. <laughs> he's been pretty into all sorts of violent stuff pretty recently. So unless, unless this is like some sort of final film, this is his final statement where he's feeling bad about it, I'm not completely convinced that he's had a huge change of heart. I didn't find the, the ending as devastating you know, but maybe because I, I'm able to die bitter and alone all by myself. You know, I, I actually don't need to go to a movie to have to learn that about about reality. But leaving that aside, is that I, I just felt the last half hour kind of belabored points rather rather than made you feel them more deeply. It was another one of the millions of Hollywood movies that doesn't know how to end. I kept thinking, oh, it's over, and then there was another scene that I thought essentially made the same point. We haven't said much yet about Jimmy Hoffa, who's, of course, a major figure in American history and a pretty important figure in this film. Al Pacino plays Jimmy Hoffa as a passionate, almost performance artist version of a union leader for whom everything is personal. 
And I think I think the reason why Hoffa matters in the film is not simply that he's running this huge, incredibly powerful union and that he was mobbed up and even more mobbed up in reality than than the film seems to suggest. But in the logic of the film, the hero Frank Sheeran is torn between two people he loves. He loves the Joe Pesci figure, who's the corporate mafia guy. And then he loves Jimmy Hoffa, who's the dirty union guy, but who for whom everything is personal. Pesci's the guy, which is, I'm sorry to do this to you, but it's just business. It's not personal. And for Hoffa, the Teamsters are his. He created them. He's the king of it. It's like his work of art. And I think in the logic of the film, on the one hand, you have the corporate guy played by Pesci, who even wears the big glasses that someone like Lou Wasserman used to wear in Hollywood. And then you have the more artistic, slightly thuggish, but he has his own vision guy, which is Hoffa. And in fact, Frank, played by De Niro, is torn between those two guys in the same way that Scorsese in his life has always been torn between the fact that he he has to work with corporate movie people. He wants to make a lot of money. His nut is huge. He needs a big payday. He wants his movies out there and they have to be big. You know, Martin Scorsese does not make tiny little movies. He's talked about going back to make those tiny little movies and he never goes back to make those tiny little movies. But he's also very much drawn to the artistic, personal guy, difficult, flamboyant, who has his own vision of things. And I think so, like almost every film, if you look at it, can be a film about the filmmaker's sense of their own filmmaking. And in this case, you see that same tension between like the corporate, soulless, all business and the person for whom everything is personal and I've created it in its mind. Well, this reminds me of another film, one that's not sad and slow like The Irishman, Ford v. Ferrari with Matt Damon, Christian Bale. Really enjoyable movie. A cool Texan and an easily overheated Brit in the car racing business. It also claims to tell a true story. It's also a buddy film. It's also filmed pretty much without women. It's also full of gorgeous old cars from the 50s and 60s. And it also has suppressed a similar theme The title makes it seem like this is a conflict between the assembly line of Detroit and the artisanal workshops of of northern Italy for supremacy in the racing world. But it's easy to see it in the light that you have just uh, sketched out. The real struggle in this movie is between a couple of brilliant race car designers and the managers and bureaucrats of the Ford Motor Company. Perhaps this is a reference to... uh, visionary filmmakers fighting with the studio execs for creative control in their race to the finish line. But really, that doesn't explain why it's such a massively enjoyable movie. Well, it's a massively enjoyable movie because it has nice, clean conflicts. You know, you have who wants to beat the uppity Italian. He tries to buy the uppity Italian who always wins the who always wins at Le Mans. And he needs to have Ford seem sexy and glamorous, and there's no better way than by winning these races. So he tries to buy Ferrari. Ferrari basically tells him to get bent. And, and, and not just get bent, but insults him. And, and the, the, the great insult isn't that he has ugly factories and he makes ugly cars. The great insult is that, remember, he's not Henry Ford. He's Henry Ford II. Now, that's a real killer because the thing that I think we can all agree on is Henry Ford I, I mean, horrible man, vicious anti-Semite, but a world historical figure. 
you know, there are reasons why in the Soviet Union, Fordism was considered to be a good thing rather than a bad thing. Yes. You know, he invented mass production. He also invented the idea of paying your workers a lot so they can actually buy your product. Or not invented, but he was for that idea. He was a creator of stuff. He was kind of like the guys who were making the car, who were working for Ford. Henry Ford II is now just the guy who's inherited the money, wants the glory. He's a corporate guy. It's all about his name and his company. These other guys are, are basically loose cannon guys. They're obsessed with cars. They care about cars. The Christian Bale character, who's a, who plays the, the difficult Brit, only cares about cars and his family and is obsessive and obnoxious. Whereas the Matt Damon character, you know, Carol Shelby, is the Texan who kind of smooths it between them. And the conflicts between all those people is extraordinarily interesting. It's fun to watch the cars go fast. And it, it's just a, a classic old-fashioned entertainment. I mean, in, in the terms of the Scorsese dynamic, James Mangold may be making a film about the conflict between doing the corporate thing and the artistic artisanal thing. Yet, he's less troubled by it. He's clearly making the Ford version of the film. And like the thing is, you know, for a long time, Fords were really good cars. It's a very successful mass entertainment. And I don't sneer at it because I think I, like most people, I probably grew up learning to love movies, watching this kind of movie, as opposed to the more arti officially artistic kinds of movies. And, you know, Matt Damon is, he's kind of a Ford actor. He knows he's a movie star. He knows what you want from it. We don't want we don't want to see Ford versus Ferrari and have him digging deep into in, into his emotions. We want him to, to smooth it along. And in fact, the movie does all of that. John Powers, thanks for coming in today. Always happy to be here. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>